Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, well, you might remember a couple of months back, we had a podcast episode all about the Terracotta Army, the Terracotta Warriors, with Dr. Shu Jin Lee. Now, Shu Jin, when we did that podcast, we also recorded another one, a follow-up episode, which we're releasing today. And in this episode, rather than an overview of this iconic part of ancient China from the late 3rd century BC and the Qin Dynasty, rather than an overview... We're now going to be delving into the detail of a specific part of these terracotta warriors. We're going to be focusing in on the bronze weapons that have been found that have survived really remarkably alongside the warriors in these various pits. So we're talking halberds, lances, spears, swords, hooks, crossbow bolts, ceremonial weapons and more. We're going to be talking about these various types of weapons and what their quality reveals about the logistics behind making the terracotta army, these terracotta warriors. What they're revealing, for instance, through inscriptions and so on, about how they were made, where they were made, what workshops, for instance, and who ordered their construction, who ordered the building of certain weapons, etc., etc., Shujin, she's done a lot of work on this topic. She answers all of these questions and so much more. This was a great episode. I love these episodes where we can delve into the detail of a specific aspect of a well-known topic from ancient history. So without further ado, to talk all about the weapons of the Terracotta Army, here's Shujin. Shujin. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast. Thank you, my pleasure. Now, of course, last time we talked about an introduction to the Terracotta Army, talking about the various styles of warriors, lacquers, and so much more, including possible inspirations. But now let's focus on something that I know you've done a lot of work around, and that's the weapons. We always think about the warriors, but we need to remember that these warriors, they also had a variety of weapons, didn't they, in this within this group of figurines? Yes, you know, the, the Tarasa warriors were well-equipped and also they equipped with the functional weapons, functional lethal weapons, but mainly bronze weapons. We only find one or two pieces, iron weapons, but apart that, bronze weapons. 
we only excavate probably one fifth of the pit of target worries, and it yields about over forty thousand pieces of bronze weapons. But mainly arrowheads, because arrowheads are in the bundles. So we find over forty thousand, and also the other crossbow triggers, lances, halberds, sword, and also ceremonial weapons. We're talking about sword, you know, that kind of weapons, no blade. So that's kind of with long shaft, and with a metal, and on one top. So that's the one end. So that's kind of、uh, ceremonial weapons find in page three. As you mentioned there, do we find particular weapon types in different parts of the terracotta army? So, as you mentioned, you find certain weapons in certain pits, but not elsewhere. Yes, you know that ceremonial weapons only find in Petri. So Petri, it was supposed to be headquarter of P one and P two, and also the ceremonial weapons were found there. And also, I mentioned because some、uh, animal skeletons and deer horns, and to show this headquarter and these ceremonial weapons, we recorded and we combined for the historical records. And this normally they no blade, so they only kind of metal, and that's like they holding the,、uh, the shaft, and like the soldiers for the ceremonial purpose, they just hold these weapons in headquarters. So elsewhere in the pits, how were these weapons arranged when you discovered them? Yeah, so in pit one and pit two, they will find different kinds of weapons. So in pit one, so that's surrounding the front, the back, and also two sides. So that's mainly crossbowmen. So we find the crossbow triggers and also bundle of arrows and also some loose arrows as well. And these are shows because they they are in the battle array. So because this is the yeah crossbowman in the four edges, you know. But in the center part, so there's mainly infantry. So the infantry they have、uh, we call、uh, the like halberds or dagger axes or spears because this is、uh, we call long weapons with wooden handle. With a wooden shaft and also with a top blade, and that's bronze blade. And this is normally for the infantry or some of the charioteer. On the chariot, they use called halberd. Halberds they fixed with a spear and the dagger axis. So in the front, in the top, they have a spear, and also in the relatively middle part, they have a halberd. They have a dagger axis, so that can fix it together. So that can,、uh, you know, fighting with enemies. They also can hook them sometimes. So that's like with long wooden handles, quite long wooden handles. So that's kind of on the chariots. The sword mainly equipped for the general. So general have a sword, and we find so far I think seventeen swords in pit one. Some have broken, and some are probably only part of the sword. So that's kind of for the high status of the military officials or general. Xu Jin, it's so interesting to hear about all of that, and the fact the terracotta warriors and their weapons. It feels like such a brilliant archaeological source 
for anyone wanting to learn more about battle tactics, about battle formations of the Qin dynasty, of the Qin period. Yes, exactly, because these three pieces detected worries and also ways these functional lethal weapons and also the arrangements. You know, you can see that in the military array. So really, you know, gave you the information about Qin time, about Qin dynasty. So their military strategy. Yeah, and then how they arrange all these different target warriors, different warriors, different soldiers that time, and with the different weapons. Well, let's talk about one of those particular weapons now, which we've already mentioned kind of, and this is the crossbow. Because by this time, the late 3rd century BC, if I'm not mistaken, the crossbow, can we say this is kind of, it's now on the scene in Chinese warfare, and it, should we say, already revolutionised Chinese warfare. This is a big weapon of war by the late 3rd century BC. Yeah, the invention of the crossbows really revolutionized the military strategies or military um, the warfares. And, you know, the crossbow triggers, uh, particularly the trigger part, you know, to fix in the wooden stock, you know, the crossbow. So they can release heavy arrows and the more targeted and also the long distance, so release arrow to the enemy. So that means really change the warfare. And this crossbow, because it's easy to manage, because you just pull the trigger and release the arrows. So that's like quite easy. And these triggers, I'm guessing so, in the terracotta army which you mentioned, because the rest of the crossbow design is organic material, all we have left is the triggers, but we found lots of them. <laughs> yeah, so we find nearly 300 so far. You know, we not completely excavated all the target worries. So that's partial excavation. So it's like over 300 crossbow triggers. And that means that Chindan State really trained many crossbowmen. And also the crossbowmen is very important part of the military formation. And, you know, because also for before the close combat, so that's the released arrows to the enemy. That's very important part to win the battle. And how were these triggers, if you go to the manufacturing and production of them, how were they made? Yeah, that's the long tradition of the bronze casting in China. So, you know, we have a long tradition uh, since the Song Dynasty, you know, from the Xiang Dynasty, like 1500 BC, 1600 BC. So that's Xiang Dynasty and they start to have, um, you know, ritual bronzes. They made ritual bronzes, bronze containers, we call. And also they have, at the same time, they have a bronze weapons as well. So that's like we're talking about ritual and military to very important part for that time for the state. So that casting bronze, we have a long tradition of mold casting because they have clay piece of mold for casting. So the crossbow triggers is also the same, you know, follow the bronze casting tradition. The crossbow triggers, actually, they have five parts. They assemble together. You know, the five parts, you know, they have a three functional part and they have a two pins fasten them together. So that's make the crossbow triggers well manipulated, well managed. And also the creating of the triggers is quite tricky or complicated because the five parts, they cast in a separate piece mode. And after cast, because they need 
filing or polishing, filing off all these extra metals on the surface because they can really assemble together and also can manipulate it smoothly, can manage smoothly. So that's very important for the triggers. After casting, they need filing. And also they need well-assembled. One set for crossbow triggers, they assemble together and they can work very well and they marked. So that's each character is on the three, five parts. And to show this set of triggers work smoothly. So that's the production processes means the casting, the filing, and also to show the workshop how they managed and then they made crossbow. With the making of the crossbows, obviously we found so many of these triggers, as you mentioned, with the terracotta warriors. But looking at these triggers, do they all look the same? Or can we see some variation in how they were, how they were made, how they were manufactured? Yeah, we use these triggers trying to know the production process and also the organization for the weapons production. So, yeah, I work on that, try to analyze all these triggers. And from the surface also, uh, we have some kind of also chemical analysis. But actually for these triggers, the production processes, we can see, so they have a different different trigger because they have a different mode, probably mode or models. They have different groups we call assemblage, you know, or cluster, you know, for the surgical analysis. So they shows because the measurements, uh, the dimensions are slightly different. So the slightly different means they use different mode or different models. Why they use different modes and models? That means probably they have different workshops or in different time periods. So can you therefore, from looking at the archaeology, can you almost like subdivide all of these triggers saying, oh, that trigger looks like it's from that lot, but that trigger looks more like that lot. So you can kind of see which workshops, which particular triggers came from. Yes, you know, that's like from this um, dimension of the triggers and also the, the surface of the triggers. And we can classify because they have so many probably workshops simultaneously for creating these crossbow triggers for casting and assemble together. And also probably different benches because like they have different time period, they create one bench and then later stage create another bench because the mode and model change. So that means we can from this trigger production show how these workshops uh, worked, managed, for the weapons production, you know, we use this call um, that time centralize the government with decentralized because they have different workshops for the weapon production. So that's kind of how these weapon production were managed at that time. That logistic stuff is absolutely fascinating. And I guess also, if we haven't even looked at that now, we'll go back to weapons in a second. But this idea if you were a craftsman in China at that time and you were tasked with creating all of these weapons, and this is something that's never been done before, to create something, you know, for the terracotta army, these terracotta warriors. One, the time and effort, but two, well, how like extraordinary it must have been for the time to try and coordinate your workshop with another workshop, 
to create all of these things that are demanded of you by the head of state for his elaborate mausoleum. It's really interesting to try and put yourself in that person's shoes, what they had to create. And I don't know about their timescale, but as you say, the whole process behind the creating of this, this incredible ancient monument. Yeah, so that's what we're talking about because like this large quantity of territory war is like over 8,000. That's only part of the small, <laughs> part of the big uh, Muslim complex and also over 40,000 bronze weapons were discovered. And we're thinking about behind it, so that's kind of strong, centralized administration that governmental control, and also they have very skillful workers or craftspeople, uh, you know, talking about um, some of the triggers. They, um, they have a um, big number, we can classify that. And also the arrows, the same. We can see different workshops and also different benches for this creation. And also we can see from the inscriptions. So we'll go on to the inscriptions now because these are interesting. So talk to us about these inscriptions that we do see on some of these triggers. Uh, yeah, the inscriptions on the triggers, sometimes on different parts, mainly from my point of view. So that's mainly for the assembling purpose. Because when they uh, marked all these characters, the, the inscriptions on the triggers, you can see because there's one trigger, they have five parts, and they normally they mark the same character. So that means they, they like for the assembling purpose because all these several parts fix perfectly and they mark it, not make mistakes. So there's one set of crossbow triggers. But actually for the other long inscriptions, so they tell quite different stories. Well, we'll get on to those long inscriptions in a moment. Actually, no, let's go on to them now, because let's go on from the crossbow triggers. Where do we find these longer inscriptions? Yeah, longer inscriptions were mainly on the halberds or dagger axes, you know, part of the dagger axes, and also the lenses. The lens is a kind of blade also with, like a sword, sometimes they confuse with sword. But sword is long blade and the small handle. But these lenses we call, so they only have a relatively short blade, but actually they have a long wooden handle. But it's a similar type with a sword. And these lenses, they have a long inscriptions as well with the dagger axis. So these two blades, these have a very long inscription. Also, the inscriptions marked they both produced before the unification. That means in the Qin Kingdom, not in the Qin Empire. So these two kinds of weapons, probably they have been used in the battlefield before buried. Contrast to the crossbow and the arrows. Because crossbow and the arrows, we don't find any like crossbows. We didn't find any wear marks. We find some filing marks, you know, characters, but seems never been used. And the arrows, they were in the bundle. Bundle of the arrows, they buried in the pit. And also we find the uh, chemical analysis and also observation, you know, that you can see the consistency within the bundle. 
and the variety between the bundle. That means the bundle of the arrows has never been used in the battlefield. Otherwise, if you use it in the battlefield, they collect the bag. So they mixed all these different kinds of uh, arrows, but they're not. So that means they've never been used. So arrows and triggers probably they produce specifically for the afterlife of the target warriors. But the lenses and the helpers, they probably had been used before. That is so interesting. I mean, yeah. <laughs> wow, that mixture as it were. I mean, you mentioned the word lances. Are these used by infantrymen or are they by cavalry or are they different weapons for each? The lenses mainly uh, by uh, infantry. They have a long wooden handles, they're holding that, yeah. Because sometimes you think lance, you think cavalry, but not here. Yeah. But keeping on the inscriptions for a bit longer with the lances and the halberds, what other information is revealed? Do we sometimes hear of certain figures being mentioned in these inscriptions, some really interesting figures who are mentioned? Yeah, so in the long inscriptions, it's quite interesting because first they mentioned which year the weapons were produced. So that's like they used the first emperor. So like this, when the Qin first emperor, he went to the throne uh, in the kingdom, when he was in the king. So that first year of the Qin emperor, and until, you know, he unified China in 221 BC, and also he died in 210 BC. So that's counting for the emperor's year, that's first year, second year, the long inscriptions first mention which year the weapons were produced. And the second, they mentioned who was in charge of the production. And also, who is the main supervisor? That means the top chancellor of the Qin states. So that means the weapons production well controlled by the government. So that's like the chancellor took charge of the weapons production. I mean, that's amazing in itself. I've got a particular name down, which is Lu Buwei. Lu Buwei, yeah. So that's Lu Buwei was chancellor at that time in the Qin Kingdom. He was in charge of the weapons production. His name there. So that's like which year, and that's Lu Buwei in charge of this production. But that's quite fascinating. And also the fascinating part is because he mentioned that yeah, on the weapons mentioned the workshop which workshop was produced called Shi Gong. Actually, interesting because Shi Gong never mentioned in the historical records. No historical book mentioned this workshop. But only in the Muslim complex we find this Shi Gong, and they produce weapons and also produce some other metal objects. So that means the kinds of problem metal workshop and also governmental metal workshop so produce weapons and other metal objects. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, Patented History of Inventions. 
Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we know not only when, not only under whose control, yeah. but also where yeah. these weapons were created, were produced. And also the last part is the real producer. Who made this weapon? So that's kind of mentioned which year, who in charge of the production, and uh, where the workshop, and also the specific producer, specific name of the craftspeople who specifically produce this weapon. So actually, this is the way of the Qin society, and they call quality control. So they mark the name, the producer's name, so he has the responsibility, he has a responsibility for this weapons production, and also the quality of this weapon. So why these two kinds of weapons have long inscription because this is real blade. Probably that's probably a little bit tough or a little bit challenge for the chemical composition and also for the production processes. Well, there you go. It's amazing how much you can learn from one inscription, from a few inscriptions on a few of those weapons, isn't it? It blows your mind, it really does. I mean, if we move on from those weapons to another particular weapon, and we briefly talked about it earlier, but let's move on to swords. Talk to me a bit about the design and style of the swords, where we find them and why among the terracotta warriors. Yeah, the sword we find, that's mainly for the general, so that's quite high status, yeah. And uh, we find the production of the sword is quite a little bit complicated than the other weapons because the Qin sword 
relatively longer than the previous and also than the latest. So the longest sword we're talking about because this is bronze weapons. Bronze weapons and、uh, they made of tin, copper, lead, three chemical main three chemical compositions. So tin is very important part of this. High tin, so that's quite hard, but that's very brittle and easily to break. And also, but the low tin is quite tough, but you cannot create quite sharp blade. And that's kind of in the Qin Dynasty. You know, the craftspeople have well good knowledge about this chemical knowledge, yet about these three elements. You know, copper, tin, and lead. So they the percentage of the copper, tin, and lead, and they they can make very good you know weapons and blade. So they made separately because the 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 center part they use low tin. So low tin so means tough. They just produce a long stake like a long rod in the middle called span of the the sword. And then they cast on the second time, cast on the blade, the blade with a hiding. So that means they produce second step, two steps. The first step make the middle part of the sword, the core area, so the long rod, and and then they cast again on the top, you know, because they they use mold and they have another liquid of the metal with a hiding. So and the cast on the top of this core area, the rod, so that hiding can make sharp and hard. The loading can make the sword tough. So that means this quite long sword won't be broke when they cut. You know, when they in the battlefield. It once again really re-emphasizes the point, doesn't it? That even though these terracotta warriors are to be buried, you know, and these weapons they're not going to be used sometimes again on the battlefield, they are still designed. Some of them are designed to be killing machines. You know, they are the real deal, and it blows your mind, doesn't it? How much time and effort are put in to create these particular weapons? Yes, they make lots of efforts. I think on weapons production and the lethal weapons and really the polishing and sharpening. You can see well sharpening all these surfaces of the blade. You know, particularly the sword and the lances, because you can see you know the polishing、uh, lines in quite fine polishing lines and quite sharp. And the other very miracle we call,、uh, you know, because the part of the sword and the lenses are well preserved. Because after two thousand years, they're still shining and they're still, you know, lethal. It really therefore begs the question that this lack of rust after two thousand years, how have they been able to be so well preserved to be in still such a wonderful shape today? Yeah, so、um, these really、um, great questions and challenging because we're talking about well preserved the bronze weapons、um, and also the arrows and also particularly the lances and the、uh, sword, but the arrows really also all、um, have well you know sharpening because they they have parallel lines. You know, we're talking about arrows because they are polished. They sharpened every arrows. So thinking about over forty thousand arrows, so that means that's really industrial scale. 
for this production, and also the lenses and the sword. They're well preserved because when they excavate it, it's still shining, you know, not corroded, it's well preserved. So in the past, because we're talking about chromium coating, you know, if these weapons have a chromium coating, um, but this is really uh, challenging issues. And uh, in the past, we have lots of arguments about that. And also I work with UCL, now um, Professor Marcos Martino Torres, and he moved to Cambridge. And so we work together on these issues because these, um, the creamy coating, if these uh, lenses are, are sold, they have a chromium coating because they are well preserved. If that time have anti-rust technology for the preservation of all these weapons. Um, but our research to show, because the weapons probably the well preserved, we don't know specifically, the what kinds of reason because the well preserved, but one of reason is high tin, definitely the tin relatively high then can well preserve, and the other is probably we call quenching technology probably in this time in the Qing time, but not really um, you know cremium coating. But when we find on the surface of the bronze weapons, we have some analysis and to show seems uh, not much chromium. And also the chromium contaminates from the lacquer, from other materials, not really coating, you know, that sounds chromium coating technology. But they do have some anti-rust technology to well preserve. So the possible is the heightened and the probably quenching. But now we have kinds of uh, hypotheses but we start, you know, in the museum, we have other scientists studied on these issues, try to use modern technology to investigate, to see what kinds of anti-rust technology on these bronze weapons. Well, there you go. Still so much research to do on that. It's great to see. Let's move on from that, though, to a couple of other weapons before we start wrapping up. Yeah. One that I find absolutely bizarre, but I'd love to ask about, are the hooks. Now talk to us a bit about the hooks that are found with the terracotta warriors. Uh, yeah, hooks, we only find two hooks in pit one, a front corner of pit one. So hook was used in the Qin time. Um, they normally were used for the close combat. So, and that means the in pit one, so that's mainly for the infantry. But actually not too many because they probably compare to the other long weapons for close combat like lenses and the halberds. So hooks seems not like the other weapons that's really practical. So that's we only find two hooks, um, not main part of bronze weapons for the Qin army. So the mainly crossbows <laughs> yeah. and also the lenses, halberds and also swords. So that kind of weapons, that's for the for equipped for the Tarakan army. For the long distance, we call long distance crossbows and also close combat with lances and halberds. So what about the spears? Are spears different to lances? Yes, yeah, spears are different. Lances is a little bit longer than spears. Um, interesting, this combined together, we're talking about lances a little bit longer than spears, but they both have a long wooden shaft, wooden handles. Halberd 
is combined with spear and the dagger axis. <laughs> so that kind of combined together. And that's main weapons in the Qin Dynasty. They're interesting because the, the helpers, they have very long handle. So they mainly use on the chariot because we find one is three meters of wooden handle. We think three meters quite long. It's huge. And also you need well, you know, maintained and not broken the handle, the long shaft, because they can reach probably a little bit long distance when you on the chariot. Well, those are huge distances, actually. And like for some comparisons with that, the hoplite spear of a hoplite in ancient Greece with the spear and shield, yes. the spear was two meters and that was a stabbing one. And then if you go to the other end, the Sarissa pike used by Alexander the Great's Macedonian soldiers was a six meter long Sarissa. So that was six meters long. They were holding it in two hands in these huge formations. Ah, yes. So if one's three meters long, and we can imagine the Sarissa Pike is a huge one. Three meters, half the size of that is still huge. Yes. I'm guessing we see in the West, in ancient Greece in that time, that you have these longer reaching weapons, but for them to work most effectively, you had at the other end, like a counterweight, a kind of butt, a kind of balancing weight. Do you have those in the terracotta army as well? Do you have things that might have been at the other end of the spear? Yeah, these lenses or these halberds, this long uh, handle. And at the other end, they have uh, the metal. Yeah, the metal we call pharaohs. Yeah, so at the end, uh, the cap, like uh, a bronze cap. At the other end, they try to balance the, um, the long handle weapons. Once again, striking similarities. You had bronze, kind of those things in the West as well, in Greece at that time, which is fascinating to think about. I could ask more about the weapons, you know. You mentioned earlier the ceremonial weapons. I'm guessing these weapons, the ceremonial, the special ones, they're not designed with combat in mind. They're for different functions, are they? Uh, the ceremonial ones, actually, yeah, we're talking about probably this only for the ceremonial purpose. But at the same time, these ceremonial weapons called Su also can be practical use in the battlefield as well. But this is no blade. Uh, but because they, they have the um, metal on the top, even the no blade, they still can use to hit the enemies with this metal end. But not like the blade is quite lethal, but actually they still can be used practically sometime, probably for close combat. Well, as we now start to wrap up, this has been great so far. When we're looking at the craftsmen who would have made all of these weapons, when we look at these weapons in detail that we have surviving from the archaeology, whether it's the inscriptions on certain ones or just the, the design of them, what is this all teaching us? What can we learn from it overall about like the logistics, you know, the labour organisation behind the creation of one of the greatest archaeological sites in antiquity, in the creation of the terracotta warriors? Uh, yeah, because I think this is both very important for creating the terracotta warriors and also for the weapons. The first, different raw materials. You know, because for the, for the terracotta warriors, the local soil, you can get this local soil and to, to work on the paste, you know, the, the clay, and also to produce, create the terracotta warriors. For the weapons, mining at first because you need to get um, the metal resources. So that's not local 
they can go the long way uh, for the for the shift of the old bronze uh, copper tin and lead. That is a big governmental control because of the resources control. You know, there's metal resources. In the Qing time, metal resources is quite um, important because um, we mentioned because these uh, weapons. The Qing conquered the other six states, so the the metal resources brought in bronze or copper tin, lead resources. Um, they have the when they first conquered Sichuan. So we we are talking about so that's like first the Qing kingdom conquered one state called Shu, and this Shu this place rich in this uh, metal material. So that probably can provide a rich metal material for this production of the weapons production. So that means large quantity of bronze weapons. And the second is, we're talking about these bronze weapons. I think there's a long tradition of bronze casting technology. So when you get the raw material and also they need processes, you know, smelting processes, and go to how these, you know, purified and how they have a chemical composition, how they mix these three metal elements together so and make perfect weapon, lethal and also tough, you know, you say. Um, arrows and also sword, we both mentioned, because arrows and the head and the tongue is different chemical composition. So it means they're quite hard, quite lethal for the arrowhead. And also the arrow tongue, they made different composition, can be flying, can be tough. So that kind of quite chemical knowledge of that time of the craftspeople. And the managing also that's very, very important part for the production. You know, the administrative management in the Qin society control the raw material and also how they shape the raw material to the workshop for the production. And also how these production process managed and how many craftspeople involved uh, so that kind of the weapons production and, and also combined with the target worries, we can tell so the centralized the management of the metal production or ceramic production and also decentralized the small workshop, you know, and these kind of two combination for the quality control and also for the specific production processes and to provide very quality weapons or quality target worries for emperors, not for emperors' life, that's for emperors' afterlife. We also can see how the empire was managed through this part and to see the administration of the empire. It's so astonishing, isn't it, to think if you're at this high level of, shall we say, capable management to complete this mausoleum, these terracotta warriors at that time, terracotta warriors which weren't even at the centre of the great mausoleum complex. And then again, when you think, actually, they're even putting so much time into creating each weapon which will be in with the terracotta warriors, it is such a, I guess in some ways, it's a statement of power of what in some ways, what the central state could do or who they could reach out to to make this dream a reality. Yes, you know, because this really for the management, you know, for the empire, so thinking about that Jin and the empire, so that's how they control uh, and how they managed all these big projects and also thinking about the manpower 
the resources. So that's kind of, you know, different level, different level of the management of the Qin Empire. Brilliant. Well, this has been a great chat, and all I can say is thank you so much for coming on the podcast for not just one episode but two. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That's my pleasure as well. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Shu Jin Li explaining all about the bronze weapons of the terracotta army, the logistics behind these weapons and more. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to hear more from Shu Jin about the terracotta army, well, you're in luck. We have got another Ancients episode with Dr. Shu Jin Li, where she provides an overview of the terracotta army. It is simply called the terracotta army. We released a couple of months back, so we'll put a link to that in the description too. We'll have to see more of ancient China in the future too. It's a fascinating area of the ancient world, and I've definitely, we well, we've got plans to do more on ancient China in due course, so stay tuned for that. Now, in the meantime, if you want more ancient content, where well, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. Every week, I write a little blurb for that newsletter, explaining what's been happening in the ancient history hit team's world that week and what's going to come next. If you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I would greatly appreciate it. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.